Hebrews. We're back again in Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, we're going to look at just uh, a brief section of Hebrews today, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 9. As many of you, uh, we've introduced already in prior sermons, but that's always worth saying again that Hebrews is a book that is written uh, to Christians uh, facing persecution, facing uh, the pressure of persecution, and facing the temptation to uh, turn away, to fall away from Jesus Christ. Um, that's uh, what this book is about, and it's written for people then who were facing under pressure to, to, uh, to turn away, to fall away, to drift away from the Lord. And it is no different in our days. We, too, still live in a world uh, that is, that is a, a world that is primarily, pre- predominantly opposed to God, opposed to His ways. And uh, they will, just as they oppose our Lord and Savior Jesus, they reject him, they will at times reject you and me. And uh, in the, the, per, the forms of persecution that you and I may face, though admittedly they are light in our country at this time, uh, they may be uh, temptations for us to drift away and to fall away from the Lord. And so this book is a book that's for us so that we might be encouraged to hold on to the anchor of Jesus so that we do not drift away. Because he is greater than anything else that we may be tempted to drift away or turn away towards to hold on to as our treasure. And so this is, uh, that's what this book is about. And so that's a great introduction. But I'll give you uh, just an interesting, uh, uh, helpful information that you may like to know. And it is this. Sitting in a raft will kill you if that raft is on a river that is flowing rapidly toward a waterfall that drops hundreds of feet into sharp, jagged rocks. Right? Sitting in a raft will kill you. In a similar way, drifting away from Jesus will kill you, will kill your soul. Missing worship here and there won't do it. Prioritizing something else instead of your relationship with God won't necessarily do it. Getting caught up of you living your life your own way won't do it. Giving in even to a sinful lifestyle, a sinful pattern won't do it. But eventually, those repeated decisions to choose your own way instead of the way will leave you so far away from Jesus that when the moment of imminent danger is at hand, judgment, you have drifted so far away that it will be too late. The warning of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 to 4 that we looked at last week against drifting away from Jesus Christ is a serious warning. It's a real warning. It's not just a hypothetical. It is meant to, to, to sober us up so that we do not neglect the salvation, that's great salvation that has been purchased for us with the blood of God's Son. How will we escape, is what the author writes, if we neglect so great a salvation? If we keep drifting away, if we drift away to the point where we neglect, we don't care about this salvation that we, that we maybe even once said we believed in. 
course, the rhetorical question that was asked by the author implies that there is no escape if we neglect salvation in Jesus Christ. Sitting in a raft will kill you. Drifting away from Jesus will kill your soul. Today's passage continues this encouragement for believers, uh, these Jewish believers who had uh, turned to faith in Christ, but were tempted now to fall away again, fall away back to their Old Testament rituals, Old Testament uh, practices, even focusing on the Old Testament law instead of Jesus. And in our passage today, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 9, explains to, the, reader, to the, the readers why there is no escape for the one who neglects salvation in Jesus Christ. The answer is why there is no escape for the one who neglects salvation in Jesus Christ is that the one whom you are neglecting, the one whom you are drifting away from, is the one who reigns over the world to come the one whom all of us will stand before one day, the one whom all of us will one day be compelled to bend the knee to, the one whom all of us will one day be compelled to acknowledge with our tongue and confess that this Jesus is Lord. He is God. That is why there is no escape for those who neglect such great a salvation. This morning we're going to look at this briefly in this <laughs> briefly in this passage about the ruler of the world to come, this Jesus. We're going to look at three truths about the ruler of the world to come, and uh, hopefully it will encourage us to not drift away. And of course, I think you know the ruler of the world to come is Jesus, and so it's this passage, like almost of Hebrews, forces us to look to Jesus to remember who Jesus is, to set your eyes on Jesus. So many different um, uh, figures, of spe- uh, f- uh, figures of kind of speech or, or, or uh, pictures in how we relate to Jesus. He's an anchor, and, but he's also, and, and when we look to him, we hold on to him, he really well, saves us from drifting away too late. So let's look then at this passage. Hopefully it'll be an um, encouragement to your soul, and I trust it will be. Uh, the Word of God will you know, remind you of why we need to hold on to Jesus. So first of all, we have this first truth that we're going to look at about the ruler of the world to come is that the ruler of the world to come is, first of all, not angels, according to the author. He, he wants to make sure that we're not, it's not angels. Of course, this is in the context of chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2... Uh, in fact, the whole book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to, to various things, many of the Old Testament rituals. And since angels were the ones who were mediators, deliverers of the Old Testament law, uh, many who were going back to the law were going back to looking to, the, to angels and thinking that angels were more important than Jesus. But in these first two chapters, the author has made very clear that Jesus is better than the angels. And, and he, as he continues that theme in in this second part of uh, the second part of, uh, chap- of chapter two, he wants them to understand that Jesus is so much better than the angels. It's it's not the angels that are going to be ruling in the world to come. So that why why turn to them now? They're not the, the your source of salvation. They're not going to be the, the source of your hope. 
Yes, they may be ministering spirits sent by God, but they are not whom we hope in. Our hope is in Jesus. So let's look at verse 5, Hebrews chapter 2. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. And uh, we'll stop right there. We'll camp a little bit in this verse for a bit. The conjunction in the four, of course, anytime you see the conjunction, it connects uh, what follows with what precedes. And uh, namely that there is no, what has preceded is this warning to not drift away because there is no escape from judgment for those who neglect so great a salvation that Christ has provided. Mankind looks at the world and uh, thinks that this world is all that ever, there ever was and all that ever will be. But if you and I know that the Bible tells us otherwise, they are, they are wrong. The Bible tells us that God is the only one who has ever been. God is the only one who ever will be. In fact, this world is not the only thing that, we, that, we are, that exists that, is, that is matters. Though it is important, we're in place here in this life, there is another world, and this, which this verse refers to, in that there is a world that is to come. A world that we don't quite see yet, but there is, it is coming. Elsewhere in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews will refer to this future world to come in various other terminologies. So it'll call it a, we're, people were looking for a country of their own. People are looking for the city to come. People are looking for a heavenly Jerusalem. It's, it's a future world. It's, it's, it's a different kind of type of life that is not going to be in this world, but in a different world, a different kind of world. The phrase uh, which just modifies the world to come that says this world to come concerning which we are speaking, that's an important phrase because it tells us that if he's been speaking about these things, then chapter 1 all the way from verse 1, 1 to 2, verse 4, somewhere in there, the author has been speaking to us about this world to come. And if we think about it, what, what, is, what has he said about this world to come? What has he said about this, this place that we're all going, that, we're, this, that many of their brethren are looking for, this country, this city, this, this heavenly Jerusalem? Well, if you look back, um, this, is a, this world to come is marked by and will begin when the firstborn returns into the world. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, when he again, God again, brings the firstborn into the world. There is a, this world is going to be changed and transformed when the firstborn, the, the one who has the highest rank, the first rank in all of the universe, the sun, when he returns, it will be a period of time that's marked by, uh, by changes in the world and in heaven as well, in the earth and the heaven. It begins with God bringing his son into the world. It will be a time when all the angels will be, once, will, uh, will be exhorted to worship him. It will be a period where he will, not only will the angels worship him, if the angels are called to worship him, then so will the rest of the world will worship him. It will be a time, of, it will be a world that where the son is, is one who is worshipped by all in the world. It is a prime time, furthermore, if we continue looking back to chapter 1, it will be a time when the Son sits on a throne, a throne that is in Jerusalem. It will be a time where he will begin 
a reign that is forever and ever. It will be a time of, of a reign where it'll be a kingdom, he will reign over a kingdom where it will be characterized by righteousness and it will be characterized by gladness and not evil and not sorrow. The Bible scholars, of course, call this world to come, this period of time where uh, the sun will sit on a throne and rule forever and be, character- and be, uh, have be worshipped by all and recognized uh, and characterized by righteousness and gladness. We call this the millennial kingdom or the kingdom that was promised to David. It will be, uh, it is literally a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. That's what begins this world to come. That's just the beginning. And in this world to come, Jesus will sit on his throne. In fact, and he will sit on his throne as king, but not just king of Jerusalem and not just king of Israel. He will be king over every nation over the earth. And later in, uh, in Revelation 19, 16, Jesus, when he returns on his white horse, he will be called not just the king of Israel, he'll be called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That is who Jesus is. He'll be manifest in that way so that all will see, all will recognize. And that millennium then will be a period of peace and justice and righteousness because Satan and his forces will be bound. And that's, we see that in Revelation. Eventually, though, that millennium will, um, will end with a, 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 a battle, a rebellion that Satan will lead again. And uh, then his, leading to his ultimate judgment, a final judgment, and then what's called, what the Bible calls a new heaven and new earth, the world to come. All of this really is this period of this, the day, sometimes we call it the day of the Lord, but it is the world to come. And it is what all the Old Testament and New Testament saints looked forward to. When they looked for the kingdom, looking for the kingdom of God, they were looking for this world to come. It was a, the, the, something they, were, they pursued and they were, devoted themselves to find. In our day, of course, and age, we, we sort of lost sight of this world to come. We don't think about looking forward to being part of that kingdom, which is, will be an earthly kingdom. It'll be on earth, though it'll eventually be a new heaven, new earth. Most of us probably think short-sightedly, to be honest. We think our destiny is in heaven, right? I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of just over the hill, so I'm starting to see, oh boy, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to heaven. And that's true, that's where we're going to go. But that's only what's called, the Bible calls, the intermediate state. Many of you know that, uh, have been in our systematic theology class, and we've covered that. But we will not, and though we will, while we will be with him forever, with God forever, we won't be with him forever in heaven. Though, our, though the, during an intermediate state, our bodies go to heaven in our, uh, our bodies, sorry, our bodies stay on earth while our spirit goes to heaven, our soul goes to heaven. But one day we know that a rapture will happen, we, we, uh, we teach, which we teach in the church, First Thessalonians 4, 13, 18. Our bodies will be resurrected, reunited with our souls. Why do we need bodies if we're dwelling in heaven? Because we're not made for heaven. We're made by God to live on earth. A perfect world that he created just for mankind to dwell. That's why he's going to, in the end, he's going to make a new heavens, a new earth. 
where mankind and his glorified, his people in glorified bodies will dwell. And this will be a world for eternity where his presence will be with us. We'll be in his presence, really. We'll worship him along with the angels. And we'll have no more sorrow, no more tears. And it will be a joyous and glorious place. This is the world to come. And that will be the world that it is because Jesus will be sitting on that throne. And then very significantly, the author of Hebrews, all this to say that the author of Hebrews says that he did not subject the world to come to angels. That that world will not be ruled by angels. Though they were tempted to turn back to the angels, he says that is not who will be ruling in that day. The verb to subject is to subordinate, is to place under authority. This world is under authority. Just as you and I may be under various authorities in our world, so the world itself is under authority. All of the world is under authority. This word subject is a, one of the key words in here in this passage. It appears five, five times, mostly in verse 8. But it is significant. And though angels are messengers and servants of God, think of Jacob's ladder and the, the vision that he had where angels were coming and going on this ladder between heaven and earth. They're actively doing the work. They're ministering spirits sent out by God to, for, on, the, for, on behalf of those who love him, who serve the Lord, who are, uh, who are being saved. Though angels are supernatural beings who can travel between heaven and earth. They can appear in, in the form of man. Though they are, if you think of Daniel, they are they are, have supernatural power. They, they fight against demonic forces. Though they are so glorious in appearance when they show to man that man, ta- man, man generally respond in fear or reverence of them because of their glorious presence. Though this is true of all of the angels, God did not subject the world to come to them. For as great as angels are of God's creation, they are not the rulers of the world to come. So, who does then, in God's plan, rule over the world to come? This leads to our second truth in this passage. A second truth about uh, the world to come, the ruler of the world to come. And, and interestingly, we learn in, these, in this next uh, six, verses 6 through 8, that the ruler of the world to come will be mankind, but not yet. Mankind, but not yet. Let's read all of uh, verses 6 through 8. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. You see, again, the author who is a definitely one who is knowledgeable in the Old Testament is returning to Old Testament uh, scripture here. He quotes from the Old Testament, just as he did it earlier in chapter 1. 
And he wants us to show, when he's quoting Old Testament scripture, he wants to show to his readers that what he has to exhort is not just his own opinion, but it's the word of God. This is what God's word reveals to us to be true. And he, has to, and he exhorts, and so he exhorts with them. And he quotes, particularly in this passage, from Psalm 8, our scripture reading, our call to worship this morning. Psalm 8, 4 to 6 is the, are the verses that he specifically quotes. Now, and it's important as we, every time when we come across an Old Testament passage, I, I want us to always remember the context in which these verses are quoted, taken, uh, quoted from. There's definitely a, a context here that we look at. But when he quotes from the Old Testament, there's a whole story because he's quoting psalms. So these are psalms that would, they would have sung. These are things that just like we teach our kids a lot of things through song, they're things that they would have learned throughout their life. They're not unfamiliar truths to them. And so he's, when he quotes these things to them, there's, there's a whole understanding that the, a Jewish person would have had when they sung or when he just sings a few lines. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how marvelous. That, just, that leads a whole few, line of thoughts because we learn these songs. We learn truths, and their psalms are like that. So he's quoting three verses out of the psalms, but yet, and he quotes them there, it brings to light in their minds the rest of the psalm. Because it's all the context in which these Old Testament scriptures are found. I want to make sure we kind of get to catch that somewhere. So when we think about why does he quote Psalm 8 here? First of all, if you look at just... The odd thing is that um, when we read the superscription of Psalm 8, we notice that it is attributed to King David. Yet, we notice here when he refers to this psalm, and it's other places he says, David says this, David says that. But here he doesn't say, David said this. He says, um, for one has testified somewhere, saying. He says it in a very vague way. He, almost very un, not very non-specifically. And, uh, and some may think that, oh, maybe he forgot, you know, just like us, we come to us, yeah, this is Bible passage, but I don't remember who said it, but it, it's in the Bible somewhere. But the author of, you know, the author of Hebrews is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, and he, he would know, he's already demonstrated by his use of much of the Old Testament that he is, an, he understands the Old Testament, and uh, he, would not, he would know that this psalm is written by David. But he doesn't want to appeal to David. That's what he does. He's, so by saying one in a general way, he's not, he's not appealing to David. What he's rather appealing to is he's appealing to God. Because it's the scripture is God's word. And so he's appealing to God and not to David, though David is the author of uh, this psalm. And so... This is, this, what he's about to quote is not just the opinion of David, the thoughts of David, but it's really the, the thoughts and of truth of God. So if the world to come is not subject to angels, then who is it subject to? Right? And that's what we want to ask. Who is it? And so the author of Hebrews conveys that through this quote of Psalm 8, that according to God's plan, the world to come is subject to mankind. To mankind, humanity, to men and women. The quote of Psalm uh, 8.4 in verse 6 First of all, it begins with his rhetorical question. What is the significance of man that God would remember him? It's, 
even furthermore, it kind of states again in, in, the, in Psalms, they are often, there's often a repetition, a parallelism in the Psalms. And he says, what is the son, or the, what is the son of man that you're concerned about him? And it's that, that mention of the son of man that, many, that trips many of us up. Because when we see the phrase son of man, we automatically tend to think about is Jesus, right? And so I know for myself, when I first read this, I thought, oh, this is talking about Jesus. And it does relate to Jesus, which we'll see in a little bit. But in the context of Psalm 8, when you go look at Psalm 8, it is not talking about Jesus. It's talking about mankind. It's talking about humanity. David is looking at up into the heavens. He's, he's saying, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name. He's, he's praising God. Why? Because he looked up into the heavens and he saw the beauties of the, star, the sky, the night sky. He sees the stars. He sees the moon. He sees the sun. He sees the magnificence of all the, the countless stars. He's probably remembering all the promises of God. And he just worships because he says, look at all these stars. We can see this, you know, and, and there, there are countless number of them. And God made them all. And yet, here we are on this tiny planet. What is man who lives a small speck on this tiny planet surrounding, rotating around this one star in a sea of billions of stars? What is man? Who are we that God would even think about us, that God would even care about us? We're so insignificant, is the thought. And I know many of you, if you've ever looked at the night sky and you kind of just look down this in the, into the sky, I know why it happens to me when I especially look at, when I look into the ocean. I love going to the ocean because it makes me feel real small. But then when I feel small, I remember how God, great God is. And so that's, what, that's what David said. He looks at it, he says that God is, yet God is concerned about man and the son of man, that is, the descendants of man. It's not just the Son of Man in, in that, in that uh, messianic title sense. God, never though we are small compared to the universe that we dwell in, even or small even in this, the scheme of this planet, in the history of mankind, yet the psalm, David writes in this psalm, that though we are insignificant, that God remembers us. God is concerned about us. God remembers you. God is concerned about you in the great scheme of this universe. That's a, that's a powerful thought. And that should lead us to worship. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what David does. He begins and ends with that worship. The next two verses, and, and because God remembers and because God cares, God, and we know this because God has revealed his plan for humanity. The next two verses quoted from Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, convey the significance of mankind. This is God's plan for mankind. Though man is created a little lower than angels... They, uh, mankind, not just, that's a humble way of saying we're a little lower than angels. We, we definitely don't, are not spirit beings who can travel between heaven and earth any, any moment we wish that God sends us. Uh, we don't have supernatural power to fight against, you know, demon forces. 
Uh, we, we don't have that glorious appearance that makes others just, oh, you know, fall back in reverence and fear. We are not like that. We're a little lower than angels. That's who we are, we're mankind. And yet, though we are a little lower than angels in our power and our ability, God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. You've crowned man with glory and honor. God gave man glory and honor. How does he give man glory and honor? How so? By appointing man over the works of his hands. That's what the uh, end of verse 7 says. You have appointed him over the work of your hands. By putting, basically another way of saying, by putting all things in subjection under his feet. The, The world that God has made is made for man to rule over. He has subjected the world to mankind, this world. From the beginning of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, God had ordained that man would rule over this world. We remember Genesis 1, 27, 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, mankind is unique among all the creation that, he, that we bear God's image. And as God is a God, is a God of, of, of authority and rule, he has created us to be fruitful and multiply over the earth so that we'd fill it and that we would have dominion and rule over this world, that we're to subdue it, rule over it, are the words that we find in this, in this Genesis 1.28. We're to have dominion over this whole world under the authority of God the Father. That's how God has met, even though we are insignificant compared to the rest of creation in its, in its extent, yet God has shown us great glory and great honor by setting us to have dominion over this world, over the animals, over the fishes, over the birds. The author then at the end of verse 8 begins to proceed to add some more commentary to the verses he just quoted. First of all, you notice that he'll say that he points out that the subjection of all things to man is total. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. That everything in this world that God has created is designed to be under the rule of man. Everything is to be under our dominion. God's plan from the beginning is that mankind would rule over this world. This is our glory and honor though we are made a little lower than angels. But secondly, and most importantly in this passage, what the second observation that we want to make, this commentary from the author of Hebrews, that though we are made to be rulers of this world, where to be, this world is subject to us, is to be subject to us, yet, secondly, we do not yet see all things subject to him. The most glaringly obvious is that man, though given dominion, at this point does not actually have dominion over 
all the world yet. And I think you and I know the reason. Why doesn't mankind have dominion over the world? Why do we not rule over this world with the, uh, with, uh, in the way that God wants us to rule? What happened? Well, we know that sin happened, right? Genesis 3, when Adam, our first, uh, the first man, sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, he rebelled against God and sin entered our world. And sin corrupted him, corrupted uh, his mind, corrupted his body, and it corrupted every mind and body of man from that point on. And because of that, all mankind has been given to selfishness, given to sin. All mankind has been corrupted, and they, they were condemned to die. We all grow old and die, and that's a reminder of our sin. For death hinders mankind. Sin and death hinder mankind from ruling over the world as God planned us. We, yes, we do rule in different ways. We have governments. Yes, they rule. But mankind does not rule this world the way that God wanted us to rule this world. We do not rule it for his glory, under his authority. We rule it. Many of us, our rulers, rule for their own selfish ends. They do not do it according to his ways. Instead of dominion, we are, have become masters of death and destruction. But the word of God, the world that God intends for mankind to rule is not yet ruled by men. And so we must ask ourselves, since it, God's plan is that this world would be subject to man, and yet not, it not yet is not yet that way because of sin, does this mean that God's plan was thwarted? The answer, of course, is no. For God is sovereign. He's almighty. God had a plan to bring about, to bring about the fulfillment of his will for mankind. And his plan is that the ruler of the world would, would come. And that the ruler of the world to come is none other, of course, than Jesus. God's plan is not thwarted because God would send his son, Jesus, who would be not only the son of God, but he would be our representative man, the second Adam, as uh, elsewhere we, in the scriptures we find. In verse 9, we read this. So... Uh, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There's a really clear connection between verse 8 and verse 9. At the end of verse 8, it's like, if all, the world is supposed to be subject to man, but we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We don't see that, but what do we do see? Well... Verse 9 says, we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus, though. We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. We see Jesus. That's a, just a, that's a really the point. The cure for our falling away, our drifting away, is that we need to see Jesus. See him clearly. To remember who he is. To remember that he is the one who is the, going to rule over the world to come. Now, there's several things mentioned about Jesus here in this passage. It's about his life that that's, we see about Jesus. See, we see his incarnation re, uh, uh, reflected here. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. That's taken, that terminology is taken right out of Psalm 8, right? 
And that's terminology in Psalm 8. It describes what? It describes mankind. And it reminds us that Jesus took on human flesh. And when he took on flesh, he joined us in being made a little while lower than the angels, though he made the angels. There was never a time when we were ever greater than the angels, but God, Jesus was at one point in eternity greater than the angels, for he made them, and yet he took on human flesh, and he was made a little while lower than the angels. That's his humility that we, that we see just in manifest there. Secondly, we see his crucifixion. His, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I forgot I got some slides for this. We see Jesus, his incarnation. We also see Jesus in his crucifixion here because of the suffering of death. He suffered death on the cross. Although he was sinless, he suffered death on our behalf. But the fact of the point is that he suffered death. The Son of God eternal son of God suffered death that is a profound profound truth and that could only be possible because the son of God became man and took on flesh only because he identified with us and took on human flesh that he could die he could suffer death but his death was unique for he did not die a death that he deserved you know that we all know that he died the death that we all deserved on the cross. And so that is why we see thirdly his exaltation referred to here. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. This again, terminology that, uh, that comes out of uh, Psalm 8, and very similar to the, the quote from Psalm 8, where we were crowned with glory and honor, and that we were given this privilege to rule over dominion. And in a very similar way, God also highly exalted Jesus. We can, the, the best passage we can think of is Philippians chapter 2, particularly verse 9. We're following Jesus' death because he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. God highly exalted him to Jesus. He highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That he is God, basically. See, God exalted him because he was the sinless son of God who died and was willing to suffer death for mankind. And he, as a representative of mankind, that God exalted him so that he would receive the glory and honor of having everything be subject to him. He is the fulfillment of all that mankind is not. He is the perfect representative of man in that he is the one who will have perfect dominion and rule over this world that God has designed us to have. And lastly, we see that it's all because of his salvation, not that he needs to be saved, but his work of salvation, his finished work of salvation. And by the grace of God, His death on the cross paid for our sins. He tasted death. He experienced death for everyone, it says. His death saves us from God's judgment, but it also restores to us the hope of reigning over this world as God had originally planned. That we'll be part of this kingdom 
of God, where Jesus reigns, where we will also reign with him, have dominion over this world. Paul would write in, uh, about this, in Romans, allude to this in Romans five seventeen. For by the transgressions of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. There's a, just as Christ reigns, we who identify with him, we who believe in him, will, are, are bound up with him in his life and his reign, ruling over the world that we too will rule with them. Through Christ, followers of Jesus will reign with him in the world to come. Not necessarily here, but we will reign with him in the world to come. And if we take just a quick tour through Revelation, we'll see that this is a promise that is repeated throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 to 27, Jesus' words to the church of Thyatira, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give him authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to places, as I also have received authority from my Father. You see, he promised that those who overcome within, by believing with Jesus, they will rule too as, he has, as they received his authority from him as he received from the Father. Revelation 3.21, the message to the church in Laodicea, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He, he allows us in, a, in his figure of speech to, to join with, sit with him on his throne and have a, a right to rule and reign. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. Uh, and this is the uh, angels, uh, there's worship here and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, this is the Lamb of God, to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of, and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then one last one, Revelation 20, verse 4. This is uh, in the millennial kingdom. Then I saw thrones. Thrones, okay, it's not just uh, pew chairs. These are thrones place of real rule, and they sat on them. Judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on their forehead, on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Because that's specifically referring to um, uh, tribulation saints who were martyred, but they are just a continuation of uh, these other, uh, other passages that reflect that it is the saints of saints who will reign with Christ. Even if you died, you will be raised from the dead and you will reign with him. Mankind's rule over this world that God had ordained in, his creation, in creation prior to the fall is not thwarted. It's not a change. It's not a oh, plan B now. God's plan is still is, is brought to fruition in his son, Jesus Christ, who died, who who, came, who took on flesh, who died, exalted, and saved us. And, the, because, and because of that, he has been given the name above every name. All things are subject to him. And those of us who believe in him, join with him in his reign in the kingdom of God. In the world to come, eternal and will not pass away, Jesus will reign.
to the church wrestling with temptation to drift away, the author of Hebrews reminds them that this world that they dwell in, this world that you're afraid to lose, why is it that you you fall away from Jesus when persecution comes? Because you and I are afraid to lose the things of this world. We're afraid to lose our life. I'm afraid to lose my money. I'm afraid to lose my reputation. I'm afraid to lose, you know, just in my family. And as precious as those things and people are in my life, these are only for this world. They will pass away. All of them will. But the kingdom and the world to come will be eternal and will not pass away. And Jesus reigns there. And this ought to be a source of comfort and encouragement to us to not, give, not drift away and turn away from him to the back to the, to, so that we can hold on to the things of this world. And hopefully it's a source of comfort to those who are believers to keep trusting in Jesus, even as many of you probably inevitably will face the loss of things. You've heard me say many times before that death is just, as we approach death, there are many smaller losses before we get there until the final loss of all all things that this world offers us. But this this, uh, encouragement is also a source of warning for believers to not drift away. For God has subjected the world to come, not to angels, not to man in his fallenness, but to the perfect Son of Man who will reign along with those who are with Him. I know we've, uh, and let me wrap up now, I know we talked about some petty heavy-duty doctrine. These are things that we don't normally talk about. Uh, I, it was a, it is a, some, it's not even, it, we don't even tend to think in terms of the kingdom to come uh, in general in our days, but I hope they, they scratch the surface for you, they make you think about what, what we are living for, what we're holding on to, and a couple questions for us to think about as we wrap up in conclusion. Can you see, perhaps, we're t- talking about the danger of drifting away. Can you see how you may be drifting away from Jesus? Maybe you're just getting, you're sitting in the raft. Maybe it's just flowing down the river. Uh, maybe it's just starting, the, the, the rapids are picking up. You know, maybe it's, <laughs> you hear the waterfall coming down. You're, you're along the way. It's not too late yet if you're just in the river, by the way. It's too late when you fall over and and hit the rocks when the judgment comes. But can you see those steps that you may be taking, small steps, small decisions that you may be making that are leading you away and away from the Lord? And then secondly, how, how, can you, how can seeing Jesus as ruler of the world to come rescue you from drifting away? Because when we drift away from the Lord, we're, we're, really, we're, we're drifting away from seeing who he is. And this passage reminded us who is the ruler of the world to come. We drift away because we want to hold on to something else. We want to, we're pursuing something else. We don't want to maybe pursue in light of pursuit. We don't want to lose things. But when we set our eyes on Jesus, we remember what we're actually losing when we drift away from him. And thirdly, perhaps for those of us that are, may not be drifting, but just need a question for us to encourage us, what do you see of Jesus today? What, do you, what are you seeing about who Jesus is that strengthens you in your walk with him? Wherever you may be in your life, whether you are drifting or whether you are not, the reality is that all of us will face life, uh, the end of life and death. And the Hebrews later on will point out this very verse. And, it is, and in as much as it is appointed for men to die 
once and after this comes judgment. That is the point of no return. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The world to come will begin when Christ comes again. And uh, we must be prepared. The death is coming. For that point, when death arrives, it will be too late for anyone in this world. And so therefore, let us remember Jesus. Look to see Jesus for who he is. For when we see Jesus, he becomes that anchor. You may be in the raft. You may be going in the river. You may be moving quickly. You may be almost heading towards the waterfall. But if you hold on to this anchor of Jesus, if you put... If your boat is, your life is held onto the rope of Jesus Christ, the anchor, he will hold you. He will hold you safe until he brings you home. Now, uh, with that, let's, uh, let's hold on to Jesus. Let's uh, hold on our anchor. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this time to look in your word, even as you challenge us to think about the world to come. Uh, many of us, uh, just, we just, we're just looking for helped in living in the world that is, that is now, Lord. But yet, thank you, Father, for reminding us that there is still a much greater, far better world that is to come. And that world is a world where Jesus reigns. Jesus rules. And we who believe in him will join with him there and reign with him. God, we pray that you would guard us from drifting away as we walk in this world, as we face uh, uh, temptations, uh, maybe even persecution at times. Lord, guard us from our own uh, temptations, desire to, to walk away and to hold, or even to hold on to things of this world that we all will lose. Lord, we pray that you would be, that you would be our source of strength, our source of comfort, that you would help us to see Jesus more and more clearly. That he would be the, the one in whom we hold on to, the anchor of our soul, the, the one who is our glorious king, who reigns forevermore, our savior, our Lord, the one whom is exalted at your right hand, waiting to return, to begin the world to come. Father, we look forward to that day and use this passage to cause us to, th- to, to love you more and to think after your thoughts and to protect and equip us to withstand the temptations to fall away and drift away. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.